0: From Heterodox Academy, this is Heterodox Out Loud. I'm Zach Rausch, and today we'll dive deep into conversation about labels, stereotypes, diversity training, and more with Irshad Manji. You're a white guy, Irshad told me. I'm a woman of color, she said. But that doesn't mean I know you. Today's episode, White Fragility, is not the answer. Honest diversity is. Is a deeply personal reflection on diversity and a call for a new way to think about what it means to be a human being. Irshad Manji is a member of the Heterodox Academy Advisory Council, the founder of the Moral Courage Project, and a New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book is called Don't Label Me, An Incredible Conversation for Divided Times. Earshot is here on the show.
1: We are all, every last one of us, multidimensional. And so if we remember that as we enter into even contentious conversations, we will be reminded that I can't reduce you, not legitimately anyway, to the disagreement that we're having right now. Because there's so much more that I don't know about you. And that if I honestly care, and that's if I care, I should be engaging instead of assuming.
0: Before we listen to my interview with her, here's Earshad's blog, White Fragility is Not the Answer, Honest Diversity is. The narrator is Susan Bennett.
2: Last year, an organization that promotes dialogue invited two authors to hold a respectful exchange about racism. I was one of them. The other was Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility. I accepted the invitation. D'Angelo declined, and that was before she went viral. White Fragility has become a Bible for diversity advocates in institutional America and elsewhere. But D'Angelo owes answers to the executives who are now panic-buying her ideas. Take the central claim of her book, that white people's entitlement to feeling comfortable makes them defensive, even hostile, when conversations about race need to be had. No doubt many white people fit that bill. However, it is not because they are white. It is because they are human. I speak from personal experience. In the wake of 9-11, I toured the world to promote liberal reform in my faith of Islam. Before audiences of my fellow Muslims, I argued that the time had come to update our religious interpretations for a pluralistic 21st century. I also explained that Islam has its own tradition of independent thinking. As people of faith, we could rediscover that glorious tradition instead of turning to outside influences. The Muslim fragility that I witnessed pained me. Most of my co-religionists did not want to hear about the need to change ourselves. Despite backing up my case with passages from the Quran, I was met mostly with denial, consternation, condemnation, and, on occasion, violent threats. It took me years to appreciate that humans, universally, respond badly to being blamed— The primitive part of our brains give rise to the ego, and the ego kicks in as a shield whenever we feel threatened. For tough conversations to succeed, emotional defenses must be lowered all around. Only then can people tap into the more evolved part of their brains, allowing reason to coexist with emotion rather than being bulldozed by it. This is why shaming white people for being fragile is both misleading and toxic. Misleading because everybody with a brain, regardless of race, can be tricked into oversensitivity by the ego. Toxic because drenching an environment in shame rarely inspires people to listen to one another authentically. More often, research shows, shaming humiliates and plants the seeds of animosity. It demeans one group to redeem the dignity of another, sowing resentment, fueling self-censorship, and undermining collaboration. Beware any diversity and inclusion consultant who stays in business that way. There is an alternate path to tackling systemic prejudice, more ethical, engaging, and ultimately effective than to accuse white people of fragility is to promote, among all people, honest diversity. Honest diversity replaces humiliation with integrity, as in wholeness. It recognizes that each of us, whatever our labels, is a multifaceted plural. By contrast, dishonest diversity slices and dices individuals into categories, as if directing people to their assigned places. Once ensconced in these cages, individuals are flattened to a single dimension, vaporizing all the rest that makes human beings capable of similarity as much as of difference. This is where most diversity efforts go wrong. They obsess with demographics, asking, how many folks of this and that type do we have at the table? Of course, representation matters both to morale and to innovation, but the operative question is how to achieve representation. Counting categories to measure success is a recipe for perpetual grievance because it inevitably leaves ever-narrowing niches out of the picture. Much better to cultivate diversity of viewpoint, which replaces silos with dialogues and thereby invites people into relationship. Yes, that means so-called white straight guys instantly belong. Yet, their belonging takes nothing away from everybody else because wholeness, by definition, is not a zero-sum game. In fact, the pursuit of different viewpoints changes the power game altogether, especially for historically marginalized people like me. Us against them tribalisms demand to know whose side I am on. I am expected to swap one form of assimilation, theirs, for another kind of conformity, ours. But viewpoint diversity values me for my individuality. It liberates me from having to be an avatar of someone else's narrative. And that is as it should be because even within identity groups, members will have varied backstories. As a result, they will also have different ideas and opinions. Recognizing this is the remedy for essentialism, racial and otherwise. So where does honest diversity reckon with the crucial issue of demographics? Are we simply to ignore lack of representation? No, we fix it out of integrity. When organizations make diversity of viewpoint a genuine and stated goal, then for the sake of accountability, diversity of demographics will have to follow. After all, those of us who have faced patterns of exclusion will naturally develop perspectives that others do not. The point is, honest diversity starts with the desire for varied perspectives and rectifies representation to fulfill that desire. To begin the other way around, representation in the hopes of diverse thinking is to incite needless friction. That is because focusing on demographics erects walls. Prioritizing a mix of viewpoints, though, has greater potential to build bridges and teamwork across institutions. What are institutions if not the people who inhabit them? It is one thing to update HR policies, quite another to expect that they be followed consistently. Such expectations are bound to be disappointed when people do not relate to one another. Caring is a far more enduring motivator than compliance. Some will allege that I just want to let white people off the hook. This ego-gratifying suspicion denies an inconvenient truth that caving to the primal brain is not a whites-only privilege. All of us do it. Yale's Jennifer Richeson and NYU's Maureen Craig point out that black Americans and Asian Americans become more conservative when they are reminded that Latinx Americans are growing in number. The prospect of losing status triggers fear in everyone, everywhere which is why it is not productive to snap our fingers, roll our eyes, and proclaim that white people should get over themselves. If leaders want to rise to this moment sincerely and sustainably, they would be wise to remember, people are humanized by being seen as individuals within communities, not as labels on legs.
0: Narrated by Susan Bennett with Earshot's blog, White Fragility is Not the Answer, honest diversity is. Now, our interview. Irshad, welcome to Heterodox Out Loud. It's a real pleasure to have you.
1: Great to be on. Thank you, Zach.
0: Why did you feel that it was important to write your blog? Why is this personally important to you?
1: I believe so much in diversity of viewpoint that anytime a theory or an idea seems to be colonizing all others, I get twitchy, <laughs> and uh, that's what was happening, and to some degree is still happening in the world of, uh, of social justice, of corporate diversity, equity, inclusion, and related areas. I wanted to show that other ideas that is beside white fragility should be considered. And in fact, I remember writing in that uh, blog post that white fragility is an idea that I believe is both toxic and misguided. So at the very least, we should consider um, applying other ideas alongside white fragility. And at best, we would actually put them next to each other and see, given both lived experience and reason, what ought to win out.
0: America is a pluralist democracy, right? With a huge amount of diversity, racially, ethnic, religious diversity. If you were to give advice, what is the best way to teach about diversity in in a classroom setting?
1: Oh, boy. Well, let me first of all take issue with the premise that America is a pluralist democracy. It aspires to be, but it is not yet, by which I mean that pluralism Really is about um, appreciating one another's individuality as much as it is, you know, honoring the diversity of groups that make up our society. And the country has long aspired to pluralism, but pluralism means that you have to also take into account the fact that individuals who belong to the same group can think differently from one another. And certainly, you know, the U.S. Constitution upholds that idea. But it is remarkably difficult to translate ideas that are on paper into what they ought to be in practice. And that goes not just for pluralism, but for really any idea, be it capitalism, Islam, um, you know, feminism, you name it. So this is part of the reason that I believe so much that education is crucial to moving along in the path of pluralism, because young people often by necessity believe uncritically what their educators tell them. And we need to ensure that they recognize that we as educators are at the end of the day, human beings first and foremost, which means each of us Will only have a partial a slice of the truth. And that in challenging us, they are in fact advancing pluralism. Now, we also need to teach them how to challenge in a way that leaves the other feeling respected rather than humiliated. And so, you know, my team and I at Moral Courage Ed have just come out with an online course for educators called Diversity Without Division. And it teaches not just this message, but also the method, very much informed by the ideals that are embraced by Heterodox Academy. Open inquiry, curiosity, epistemic humility, and of course, viewpoint diversity.
0: Sticking with the concept of pluralism, can you talk about the idea of humans as a plural? something that you write about in the blog.
1: Sure. So in my latest book, Don't Label Me, I point out that labels are the easy, lazy way that our brains try to make sense of the world. And I get that as a result of our biological wiring, labels aren't going away. Yet, we also need to accept that labels often make nonsense of the world. So for example, Zach, you're uh, a white guy, I am a woman of color. Does that mean by dint of those labels that I know everything I need to know about you or that you know everything you need to know about me? Obviously not. And yet the assumptions, the baggage that goes with labels make our primitive brains believe that yep, by dint of your demographics, I now know everything I need to about you, which is just nonsense and sometimes even dangerous. What I have proposed as the anti-label is plural, that all of us, including our pets, for example, any sentient being has a personality of his or her own and therefore is so much more than what meets the eye. We are all, every last one of us, multidimensional. And so, if we remember that as we enter into even contentious conversations, we will be reminded that I can't reduce you, not legitimately anyway, to the disagreement that we're having right now. Because there's so much more that I don't know about you. And that if I honestly care, and that's if I care, I should be engaging instead of assuming.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about your story in terms of how you came to these ideas that you have?
1: Well, it's been a long journey. 20 years ago, shortly after 9-11, I wrote a couple of books about the need for reform in my faith of Islam. I had not studied neuroscience and cognitive and social psychology at that point. I knew all that I needed to and, and had to about Islam, but not why people behave the way we behave. And so I made some pretty big mistakes as I walked into the lion's den. I knew that I would be subject to a lot of vitriol and hostility, denial, denunciation, and from time to time, violent threats. Uh, from my audience, by the way, most of which were mixed audiences, Muslim and non-Muslim, and I figured I needed to give as good as I got. I needed to show them that I wasn't going to back off just because of their intimidation. So I went into pretty much every uh, event with my metaphorical fists clenched and my and my back up and my my armor on. That only made the situation worse. At one point, I decided I am so exhausted by by all of the toxicity that I'm gonna change myself. And I made an emotional pact that when I heard a good point from my so-called other, I would acknowledge it. When I didn't know the answer to something, I would admit that. And when I needed a moment to think through a question or a challenge that was thrown my way, I would take that second or more. And when I did that, it made all the difference. In fact, the biggest so-called victories that I've had in my activism have come from uh, developing the moral courage to speak truth to power, but not just power out there, speak truth to the power of my own ego. And when I've been willing, not even able, every one of us has the ability, but when I've been willing to tame my ego, that has lowered the uh, emotional defenses of my other and allowed them to get rid of the negative noise rattling around in their heads so that they are motivated to hear me because I've gone first in the listening department.
0: What do you want to make sure that people come away from your blog and your work with?
1: I'd like them to understand that at the end of the day, viewpoint diversity, social justice, freedom of expression, what we tend to pit against one another, are actually not opposites. They can, in fact, be reconciled if we as human beings are willing to reach across these artificial divides and develop relationships with one another. When I speak with people on the so-called left about viewpoint diversity, I point out to them that in fact, it's all about busting stereotypes. You see, I'm Muslim, I'm queer, but that doesn't mean that I think the same way as every other Muslim out there, and by the way, every other Muslim doesn't think like every other Muslim, or that I think like every other queer person out there, which incidentally, you know, is kind of absurd when you think about it, since every other queer person doesn't think exactly like every other queer person. The point is this, that if we recognize that viewpoint diversity applies to people within groups, and not just between and among groups, then we will be busting stereotypes without creating more stereotypes along the way. And that is how we come to appreciate that freedom of expression and viewpoint diversity and social justice can be reconciled. But I can only explain this if I'm willing to engage with the person who first disagrees with me, rather than, you know, snapping my finger, rolling my eyes, and walking away. It's amazing how much impact human relationships have if we're willing to build them.
0: Thank you so much, Irshad. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Well, right back at you.
0: (laughs) Irshad Manji, you've been listening to Heterodox Out Loud, If you enjoy our podcast, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen, and leave us a review. Davies Content produces this show. I'm Zach Rausch. Thanks for listening.